Hello, and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle envies that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history, because history has never been as straight as you think. everyone. It's been a while since we did an episode, and I'm so happy to be back in this space with you. Thank you for your patience while I went through a lot of work things and uh, getting a pet and spending all my time dedicated to that. And also, happy Pride, everyone. For all of you wonderful gay babies out there, I really hope you have a wonderful and exuberant pride and you are able to go to some sort of events socially distanced that are available to you now. Hopefully folks have gotten vaccinated and are starting to be able to get back out into the world. Today I am joined once again by Aubrey Calvin who is coming here with me today to talk about Polly Murray which we teased a little bit in our uh, last episode together and we've been working on this episode for quite some time because this person is had such an expansive life. Um, it's so, complicated. Uh, yeah, welcome back, Aubrey. Hi. How Hi. have you been in the the three or four months since we last talked, at least on a podcast together? Well, thanks for having me back on. I have been okay. Okay. I mean, that's what that's what Americans say, right? When we look like when we when we <laughs> yeah. be vague, like I've been okay. You know, I mean, I've been I've been hearing people say I'm I'm doing pandemic okay. You know, it's like all right. <laughs> you know, like I'm vaccinated and people are starting to do more things. So I have to get used to being around people again. Yeah. And I don't want to make the pandemic sound like a good thing, but I've been enjoying not being around people for a year. <laughs> <laughs> right now you have to like get back into yeah, like, yeah, no, like, like oh. actually engaging with people. And I'm like, mm, I forgot how. To- yeah. Like, where's the social distancing anymore? And where is the <laughs> leave me alone and the intentional staying away from me? So I forgot how to be around people in person. <laughs> I have to retrain my mind that it's okay for other people to be in the same aisle as me mm. in the grocery store. I have, I am not looking forward to the day where like people just stop like blanket wearing masks because I've really enjoyed a not like, you know, having to like just smile at everybody who walks by. Oh, yes. Yes. I've gotten into the habit like when I've been in customer service situations where I just kind of mouth whatever the person is saying or like making weird faces (laughs) under my mask. And I'm really afraid that I'm going to not be with my mask at some point and do that. And they're going to be like, excuse me, what are you doing right now? Are you making fun of me? Are you making fun of me? What is going on here? (laughs) What's See, happening? <laughs> I like the masks because, you know, I'm so I'm a trans woman, uh, she, her pronouns, but I'm also busy and lazy. And so <laughs> sometimes I don't feel like putting on makeup, which yeah. does, you know, make me look a little bit more masculine without it. And so the masks have been great because I've been really lazy about my makeup regimen. It's been so great not having to, you know, put on makeup so that I'm addressed properly in society. Right. Yeah. I also haven't gotten sick in a month, in a year and a half. So like, that's a bonus. Yes. See? There you go. Let's keep them around. Yeah. Let's keep the masks (laughs) going. In the pandemic, but keep the masks and the social distancing. In fact, no one touch me ever again. (laughs) (laughs) 
I just you can get you can get a mask that says that just don't no touch one touch me, me like ever again. Don't touch me. <laughs> I actually ended up getting a mask that says, "Please don't call me, ma'am." Mm. Um, <laughs> See, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, uh, this is going to be an interesting episode in that, um, like I said, we are talking about Pauli Murray, and we're going to jump right into talking about the format for this episode because this time is going to be a little bit different. For the first time in the history of this podcast, we are splitting the episode into two parts. In this first episode, we're going to give you an introduction to the incredibly packed life story of Polly Murray, and we're also going to be talking about their writing and their friendships and a little bit about their legacy. In part two, we'll be laser focusing in on Murray's multifaceted queerness and how academia and scholars have struggled with how exactly to talk about such, considering their own relationship to it. And we'll get into that in detail. In that second episode, we'll also be including a really amazing conversation that I had with Director of Policy at URGE, which is Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity, Preston Mitchum, who came together with me to have a really wonderful conversation on Polly Murray's influence on the legal system and the way that we understand the 14th Amendment and Preston's own queer journey coming to Murray's story and the way that they can influence current and future queer legal strategists and lawyers. So we hope that you'll stick around for this episode, even though we won't be, you know, getting to the queer bits until later. But Polly Murray's life is so interesting and multifaceted and so incredibly important that we really decided to dedicate an entire episode just telling you about their life story. And then we will get into... Uh, all the juicy queer bits. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this conversation has just been extended and extended because originally I wanted to talk about Polly in the episode about queers in the civil rights movement back in February, and they were on the list of people for us to talk about. But then we started learning more and more and more. And you said, let's just make Polly their own separate episode. And then we learned yeah. more and more and more. And now it's like, okay, <laughs> let's, like, make oh, it's let's make now. Polly two episodes. <laughs> so the more yeah. we learn about them, and I think this is the part I love about history is that there's always more to learn, more unsung heroes. But this has really grown because this was like yeah. two paragraphs in the civil rights, queries in the civil rights episode. <laughs> right. And now it's a whole thing. Now it's a whole thing. Yeah. For this first episode, in terms of content warning, we're going to be talking about period typical racism, sexism. We're going to be getting into a lot of the history of Black experience in the United States, which involves enslavement. So we will also be putting time codes in our description for specific descriptions that we feel might be triggering as usual. But yeah, uh, Aubrey, before we get started, is there anything that you would like to talk about or kind of shout out that you've been working on? So I wrote a piece for Gay Parent Magazine. I've been kind of named like a regular contributor over there. So I'll be in every episode that Gay Parent Magazine issues. Awesome. And my latest piece is on kids at Pride. And the basic takeaway is that kids have always been there. And at this point in our society, it's probably kids and trans people, but even mainly trans kids that need Pride the most. Because, you know, this is Pride Month and there's always that debate of... The discourse going on, yeah. Should there... Should kids be at Pride? Is it too? Should there be kink? And I'm like, one, they've always been there. And two, they need it more than us adults do. I'm sorry. Right. They just do right now. Uh, so There's space for out. both. There's space for both. You know, I mean, and, and now Pride is so big that every 
city's pride isn't just one thing. It's multiple events. Mm -hmm. And so you got to find the space that works for you. So there's that. Uh, Southern Queries. We are finishing up our wedding series because we've been doing Queerly I Do. This is a six-part look at weddings from like a more of a Southern perspective. And we have our last episode coming out, or it may be out by now by the time you all listen to this, called Queerly I Don't, Why Some LGBTQ People Don't Want to Get Married. So we wanted to bring that in. I think that's it. I, I, I do, I don't mean, I've been doing my writing, but I think that's about it for now. Yeah. Neat. Well, cool. Let's dive in. So our main topic is going to be about Polly Murray, and I would not be surprised if many of you have not heard of this person, because unfortunately, they have really been kind of relegated to the sidelines in history and in the history of legal strategy and the way that the 14th Amendment has been used to further civil rights. And so we really wanted to bring a light on them. There's been a little bit more work on them in the last several years. I was really, really surprised to find how many people, you know, cited them as an influence and that we never heard anything about them. So I wanted to start off with a couple of quotes. There is a historian named Susan Ware who once argued, it may be that when historians look back on 20th century America, all roads will lead to Polly Murray. And Catherine Schultz has a really great quote that kind of encapsulates many facets of Murray's life in that this was Murray's lifelong fate to be both ahead of their time and behind the scenes. Two decades before the civil rights movement of the 1960s, Murray was arrested for refusing to move to the back of a bus in Richmond, Virginia, organized sit-ins that successfully desegregated Washington, D.C. restaurants, and anticipating the Freedom Summer, urged their Howard classmates to head south to fight for civil rights, and a full four decades before another legal scholar, Kimberly Williams Crenshaw, coined the term intersectionality, Murray insisted on the indivisibility of their identity as an African-American, a worker, and a woman. Totally ahead of their time. (laughs) And totally, I think the fact that we don't know much about them says a lot, because as the quote mentioned, they went to Howard University for law school. I went to Howard University for law school as well. Now, I didn't last long. I I stayed a semester and realized I didn't want to be a lawyer. But I went there specifically for civil rights law, and their name never came up, even at Howard University. And, you know, keep in mind, this was, you know, almost two decades ago, but I went there for for civil rights law, and they didn't come up. Thurgood Marshall came up, Charles Hamilton Houston, a few other prominent civil rights lawyers, but Polly was never mentioned, and I find that interesting now. Yeah, they're relegated to the background, and other people kind of got the credit for for things. So we're going to uncover that today. Let's start off a little bit with some general historic context on the time period. We also want to acknowledge that uh, this is going to be a very United States legal focused episode <laughs> and not everybody who's listening may have a good primer on US, the US Constitution and <laughs> equal rights law. So we're going to give you a little bit of a primer in that. Just to start Murray was born the same year as the National Urban League was founded, so 1910, and one year after the creation of the NAACP. So really kind of at the beginning of burgeoning modern civil rights organizations starting. And around the time of their birth, North Carolina, which is where we're going to kind of start our story a lot, uh, has begun rolling back Reconstruction era progressions. And at this time, a lot of legislatures were expanding and creating the racist Jim Crow structures in place that progressed a lot of segregation throughout the South. 
And Aubrey, who is a uh, government and history professor, is going to tell you all about the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution, which Murray dedicated much of their life to. Yes, the 14th Amendment is considered one of the more significant of the 27 changes we've made to the Constitution. And the 14th Amendment was really all about providing a level of equal protection under the laws. Uh, This was proposed by Congress after the Civil War, during the time of Reconstruction, when Congress and what were then called Republicans, which would be closer to Democrats today, uh, when Republicans in Congress noticed that the Southern states were still treating Black people horribly, even though slavery had been abolished. And we're still trying to maintain that system of race hierarchy through what called Black Codes and through all this discrimination. And the 14th Amendment was meant to provide a level of redress to that. And it's one of our longer amendments, but the big idea behind it, and I'm going to try to quote from a, like a bridge from it directly, it says that all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof uh, are citizens of the United States and of the state where they reside. And then it says, no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws mm-hmm. and due process of law. So that's the big idea is that it's not just that the national government can't discriminate against you. States aren't supposed to discriminate against you either. And so that became the basis for so much of the civil rights movement, especially the legal battles surrounding it. Yeah. And you'll see this comes up throughout Murray's career as well as has repercussions for what has been going on literally today in the Supreme Court and the way that the arguments that were kind of established by this person and then repeated by multiple other people come to expand understanding and the ways in which this amendment has been used uh, in in determining various equal rights laws. For a lot of different groups, you know, for people of color, for women, for LGBTQ people. It's been used for uh, immigrants. It's been used for veterans. It's been used for those that are disabled. It's probably, it's it's considered like a workhorse amendment because it is used so much as opposed to like, say, the Third Amendment about quartering soldiers in your home, which we barely ever use because we don't need <laughs> right. to. Right, yeah. But, Not as relevant like, like, like We don't use that one, but the 14th uh, is one that, is used all the time. So before we get into bios, we wanted to make a note on pronouns and the language that we'll be using in this and our next episode. While Polly Murray used the pronouns she and her in their lifetime, we sat down and we discussed what we would be using for this episode. And we've chosen to use they, them pronouns to reflect Polly's own grappling with their gender identity. We've also seen he, him used widely, which is something we find totally valid considering many of Polly's thoughts and writings about feeling like a man trapped in a woman's body, which we'll get into in our second episode. We figured that gender neutral pronouns essentially bridge a gap acknowledging Polly's gender ambiguity and potential trans identity, while also placing great importance on the impact of their existence in roles and arguments traditionally barred to women or people who were perceived as women. So you'll hear us refer to Polly often as the first woman too, or that some institution didn't accept women. This is not necessarily us saying Polly Murray was a woman, but we want to 
retain that language because these contexts are really important to their story and the way that they broke boundaries. So yeah, while we may not know exactly how Polly would have preferred to identify in terms of contemporary trans language and terms, the fact of their life is that they were deeply affected by sex and gender discrimination and the ways in which their assigned sex at birth presented limitations along the way throughout their life. We want to honor that. So let's start a look at who they were and some of their early life and background. Polly Murray was born Anna Pauline Murray on November 20th, 1910 uh, in Baltimore, Maryland as the fourth of six children, which I know a lot of LGBTQ people are into astrology and (laughs) zodiac signs. I don't know that what it means, except that November 20th is one day before my birthday. So we're both we're both Scorpios. There you go. I don't know what that means, but I just know. And as we said before, that is the same year, 1910 was the same year that the National Urban League was founded, and one year after the creation of the NAACP. Polly wrote, My life and development paralleled the essence of the two major continuous civil rights organizations in the United States. Polly didn't get to spend a long time with their parents, unfortunately. Murray's father, William, was a teacher and principal in Baltimore, Maryland, and was also a musician, composer, poet, and athlete earlier on in his life. Their mother, Agnes Fitzgerald, was born on her parents' North Carolina farm and, like most children of the time, helped with the farming until she left for Hampton Training School for nurses. So because of uh, his stature as a teacher, Polly's father, William, and Agnes's belonging to the black elite Fitzgerald family, their wedding was considered a high-class affair for Durham High Society at the time. The Murrays lived a very middle-class life, and although they sometimes that life was tight financially, they did own a nice brick home in a good neighborhood, and they also held on to a second rental property. So why is this background important? Well, when we often think of the lives of Black people in the early 1900s, the thing that comes to mind is typically poverty, backbreaking sharecropping, being the life of, dom- of a domestic, or not having any kind, and just like the racial oppression, which is absolutely there. But even through all that, there were a lot of Black people that thrived and were able to achieve a middle or upper class lifestyle. And the Murrays are just an example of that. That's always existed even in the face of oppression. So we think that's also important because being a black elite family didn't actually guarantee complete financial stability or sustaining generational wealth. Uh, which we'll talk about more when we look at Polly's uh, work history. Yeah, the so-called fairy tale marriage between Polly's parents unfortunately didn't last long, however. Shortly before Polly was born, about five years, William developed typhoid fever in uh, 1905, which changed his personality drastically, and it led to him having repeated stays in hospitals. And so Murray's early life was really punctuated with a lot of different institutionalization of their parents. When Murray was three, their mother died in 1914 uh, while pregnant with her seventh child. After Agnes's death, William was permanently institutionalized, and so Polly was sent to live with their mother's relatives in North Carolina, who became really influential in raising them. Uh, William would die at Crownsville State Hospital for the Negro Insane in 1923. Despite his illness, the hospital actually recorded that he did not die from a medical issue and was in fact murdered by one of the white staff members. In North Carolina, Polly lived with grandparents and two aunts. Although Polly was close to them, uh, they wrote in a short story that sometimes they felt lonely. 
having to grow up as the only child in a house full of older adults. Of the two aunts, Aunt Pauline, which was Aggie's sister, did most of the daily parenting of Polly. The institutionalization of their father also separated Polly from their siblings, but Polly would often try to spend summers in Baltimore with their siblings and paternal relatives. So there was an effort to make sure Polly was in touch with both their mother's and father's side of the family, but the back and forth did leave Polly feeling stuck between two sides of their family. Polly would write, in a sense, this is a history of my life, being pulled between my families and other things. Yeah, and this this pull between two identities, two parts of themselves, different events, is really recurring throughout their life. They were also really bright from a very early age. They taught themselves to read by the age of five, and Aunt Pauline was a school teacher, and so they would sit in the classroom and listen to and absorb the lessons, even though they were way younger than the students in the class, and so they pleaded basically the primary school curriculum super early. Very voracious reader. They, they actually, I think they said that they, they had like a voracious appetite when they were a child for both eating and also reading. Yes. Um, <laughs> you'll hear them described as like voracious, as wiry. Energetic. <laughs> yeah, like this energetic ball of fire, basically. Uh, one, one author described them as a firebrand. <laughs> yes. So Polly graduated from high school at 15 as editor-in-chief of the school newspaper, president of the literary society, class secretary, and playing forward on uh, the basketball team. But rather than attend the segregated North Carolina College for Negroes, Polly sought a more northern life and applied to Columbia University. Unfortunately, they were rejected because at the time, Columbia didn't accept women. So at this point, Polly decided to attend Hunter College, an all-women's college, and lived in Harlem during the time of the infamous Harlem Renaissance that we've covered before. Uh, They convinced their family to let them live with a cousin in Queens, New York, And before they enrolled, they discovered that they needed to enroll back in high school to finish classes needed to matriculate because Hunter wouldn't accept the amount of schooling that they had had. Black North Carolina high schools at the time ended in 11th grade, so they needed to make up the gap. So they graduated with their second high school diploma with honors in 1927 and then enrolled in Hunter College for two years. This was before the whole standardization of the education thing and all that. Going to school during the Great Depression, Polly had to work an unending series of low-wage jobs to pay for school and living expenses. The instability of such a life caused them to have lifelong health problems. And I was reading in one biography that they lost 15 pounds in one year just from the exhaustion of this type of life. Uh, While at Hunter College, Uh, They met such people as W.E.B. Du Bois and became friends with Langston Hughes. Polly graduated in 1933 with a B.A. in English. Every time I hear that phrase, it just makes me go back to like Avenue Q. Yes. What I was do the... you do? Okay, so it's not just me. Okay. No, no, that it's, is... it's forever. Oh my stuck god, in my yes. Head. That popped into my head. I can't head. hear BA in English. And I was like, oh song. my god, okay. And I was trying <laughs> okay. God, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Because that's I'm, yeah, all... just just kindred spirits right Okay, because that was in my head. I'm like, <laughs> then I was trying not yeah. to say <laughs> Okay. 
so as Aubrey was saying, um, you know, they graduated right smack in the middle of the Great Depression and work was nearly impossible to find. But for the next five years, they worked several different jobs, including at the WPA Workers Education Project and the National Urban League. So you'll start to see a thread of them really working for a lot of workers' rights and unionization. Their poor health, unfortunately, forced them to resign from the National Urban League. And at this point, they were encouraged by their doctor to seek a healthier environment, which led them to a place called Camp Tira or Terra, which was a New Deal conservation camp set up at the urging of Eleanor Roosevelt. So these camps, which were known as she, she, she camps, which was play on, on words and essentially a parallel to the CCC camps, which stood for Civilian Conservation Corps, a program of the New Deal that FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, set up to provide basically residences and employment to young folks out of work. And so Murray ended up taking a position at the camp and living there and spent about three months recovering there and their health, both physical and mental health, improved. Mm -hmm. And at this point, they actually met and began a 30-year-long friendship with Eleanor Roosevelt after one of her visits to the camp. And we'll talk about more more of that in detail. See, I had never heard of the Camp Terra or the she-she-she camps. I always thought that this most of the worker programs were for young men. So just yeah. the idea that this camp existed f- to put women to work, I had never heard of that. So I'm learning right. so much. I learned so much of coming on your show. And and that it was something that, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt was like, mm, we're not going to just leave this for the men. Please, please, dear husband, set this up for some women. Well, that, that's always been her thing, right? Like, remember mm-hmm. women, remember minorities when you're making all these progresses. It can't just be about white men. And so she was definitely a pioneer in that regard. So uh, Polly got involved with the labor movement after the camp and the Communist Party, but only for a year. And they resigned because they found party discipline irksome. <laughs> I love the way that they describe that. Just found party discipline irksome. <laughs> they, I don't, Polly doesn't like rules, I think. No, it's, or and, labels. It's, it's structure and labels and these rules that restrict them from being themselves. Polly's a kindred spirit of mine because I hate rules too. <laughs> I would I would call them an anarchist, but they probably wouldn't like me calling them anything. They're like, I don't want that label either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so in 1938, they applied for a graduate program in sociology at the University of North Carolina. And again, they were rejected because this time the school didn't accept African Americans. Timing was actually on their side this time for once, however. At that same time, the Supreme Court had just ruled that graduate programs had to accept African Americans if there was no equivalent black institution. So the case at the time was broadly publicized in both white and black newspapers and Murray ended up writing to officials ranging from the university president all the way to President Roosevelt and released their responses to the media in an attempt to embarrass them into action, which is such a power move. The NAACP originally was interested in representing Murray, but ended up declining. They feared that since Murray was a New York resident and uh, not a resident of North Carolina, that it would weaken the case for them. In March 1940, Polly boarded a bus in New York with a friend. And when changing buses in Richmond, Virginia, they sat closer to the front than the back since the seats were broken. When the bus driver told them to move, they refused. And Murray and their friend were thrown in jail. And so this was a good 
14 years, if you will. This was a long time before even Claudette Colvin, before Rosa Parks. And so the NAACP was interested in their case this time and wanted to use Murray's arrest to challenge the constitutionality of segregated interstate travel. But as is often the case when a state didn't want to face a constitutional challenge, they lowered the charge. So they charged them only with disorderly conduct and fined them $43 which they didn't have, which meant they went back to jail and were released a few days later. Of all the segregated institutions, Murray hated the bus the most, writing that the intimacy of the space permitted the public humiliation of black people to be carried out in the presence of privileged white spectators who witnessed our shame in silence or indifference. Wow. Yeah. I mean, this was before the international highway system, before cars became cheap. Traveling by bus was the main way to get around the country. And that sounds absolutely horrible. Yeah. Back in New York, the Workers' Defense League asked Murray to help raise money for a man named Odell Waller, who was a black sharecropper who had been sentenced to death for killing his white landlord in self-defense during an argument. Um... Murray angrily wrote to FDR on Waller's behalf, which actually ended up cementing the friendship between Eleanor Roosevelt and Murray after she invited Murray to tea. She actually ended up uh, responding. Murray accused FDR essentially of caring about fascism abroad more than white supremacy at home. After delivering a speech while fundraising for Odell Waller in Richmond, Murray met Thurgood Marshall and Howard Law Professor Leon Ransom, who suggested to Murray that they apply to Howard, which they did, with a letter of recommendation from Marshall and a scholarship arranged by Ransom. Waller's final appeal was denied, and he was unfortunately executed. Murray enrolled in Howard Law with the single-minded intention of destroying Jim Crow. Uh, Enrolled in 1941, Murray was the only woman in their class at Howard, and all their faculty was male, and Murray's gender quickly became a sticking point at the institution. On day one, a professor remarked that he didn't know why a woman would want to go to law school, and humiliated and infuriated, this comment spurred them to become a top student. This specific discriminatory treatment Murray experienced as both a black person and as someone perceived as a woman, they termed Jane Crow. Coining the concept years before even Kimberly Crenshaw would go on to coin the term intersectionality. Which leads us into our word of the week. Word of the week. Gay word of history. So in order to talk about Jane Crow, we need to go a little into the history of the phrase. It's a derivative of Jim Crow. The phrase Jim Crow originates in the 1800s in the United States and has often been attributed to a song called Jump Jim Crow, which was a minstrelsy song performed by a white actor, Thomas D. Rice, in blackface. As a result of his fame, the phrase started to shift to become a derogatory name for black folks at this time, as shitty racist things often do. By the late 1800s, the racial segregation statutes that Southern legislatures were passing came to be known as Jim Crow laws. Murray's 
coining of the term Jane Crow was essential in demonstrating their conviction that Jim Crow laws specifically negatively affected black women in ways different than black men experienced. They delivered a speech called Jim Crow and Jane Crow in Washington, D.C. in 1964 in which they said, Not only have they stood with Negro men in every phase of the battle, but they have also continued to stand when their men were destroyed by it. The black women decided to continue standing for their freedom and liberty even when their men began to experience exhaustion from a long struggle for civil rights. These women were unafraid to stand up for what they believed in and refused to back down from the long and tedious battle. One cannot help asking, would the Negro struggle have come this far without the indomitable determination of its women? Speaking on their own experience in this particular intersection, Murray reflected in various interviews and writings. The harsh reality was that I was a minority within a minority, with all the built-in disadvantages such a status entailed. And in a 1967 letter to NOW, National Organization of Women, I hold the status of several minorities. Therefore, I cannot allow myself to be fragmented into a Negro at one time, woman at another, or worker at another. I must find a unifying principle in all of these movements to which I can adhere. And so we really wanted to bring this out as like a little segment, really talking about how the term Jane Crow was one of the first times that this concept of intersectionality and the intersection of the ways these various oppressions affected somebody was kind of put into terms, put into something that you could really kind of put put a label on. And uh, even Kimberly Crenshaw acknowledged that, you know, she wasn't the first person to discuss this and come up with a phrase and term for it. So for as much of a, you know, kind of buzzword as we see intersectionality right now in 2021, we really wanted to give due credit to Polly Murray for being one of the first people to publicly be out there and and give a, a name and a face to this. Have you ever typed a URL into your browser and thought, this could definitely be more gay? Well, wonderful queerlings, I'm really excited to share that today's episode is sponsored by the new .gay domain extension, and they've partnered with us at History is Gay to set up our listeners with a free .gay URL for your website or portfolio. Can you imagine telling people to go to www.imawesome.gay? I personally am going to set one up for myself. .gay is a domain extension like .com or .net, but obviously way more gay. It not only makes a website more fabulous, but it has industry-first policies helping to fight discrimination both online and off. With queer celebrities like George Takei, Adam Lambert, and Roxanne Gay, along with LGBTQ organizations like PFLAG National, Action Link, and the Feel Something Foundation, the .gay community has grown into one of the most vibrant, diverse, and supportive spaces online in less than a year on the market. We're really excited to be partnering with .gay because the .gay domain provides a unique digital space for LGBTQ people. They give 20% of revenue from each new domain registered to nonprofit organizations working to make a difference for LGBTQ communities. Also, .gay has first-of-its-kind anti-hate policies which prohibit and take down anti-LGBTQ content. The .gay domain is taking a groundbreaking approach to making the internet a safer and more welcoming space. And what do we support more here in this space than working to make the world a better place for queer folks? 
To celebrate this new domain extension, .gay is offering our listeners a free .gay domain name of your choice for your own website or brand for one year. To grab your free .gay domain name, simply head to historyisgay.gay, search for the name you want, and enter coupon code HISTORYISGAY at checkout. Or you can simply click the link in our episode description and you'll get redirected to a .gay with the coupon code already applied. Your free .gay domain name comes courtesy of trusted domain name registrar Porkbun and will also come with free Whois privacy, a free SSL certificate, free hosting trial, and free email, plus a super intuitive website builder. The .gay launch presents a historic opportunity as a completely new space for people in the LGBTQ community to engage online, so please take advantage of our offer and join the .gay family. So back to our story. Back to... Polly at law school. In 1944 at Howard, Murray bet their professor in front of the whole class in a conversation on how to bring an end to Jim Crow. That Plessy v. Ferguson, uh, which was the case that established the principle of separate but equal is okay, so that legalized segregation, Polly said it would be overturned within 24 years. Murray had argued instead of questioning the equal part of the separate but equal doctrine, why not challenge the separate instead? This was like the the big asterisk, the big important piece. Yes, right? That became the big part of it. They formalized this argument in their first law school paper, writing that segregation violated the 13th and 14th Amendments of the Constitution. And I talked about the 14th Amendment earlier. The 13th Amendment is the amendment that said that slavery is abolished except for prisoners. And that's a whole other thing. We still have prison-based slavery even to this day. Um Years later, when that same professor, Spotwood Robinson, worked with Thurgood Marshall on ending Jim Crow, he remembered the paper and presented it to his colleagues, the team which argued Brown v. Board in 1954. So the fact of the matter is that Polly Murray was incredibly important and influential to all of these legal cases, and yet was rarely attributed credit in appropriate time. Mm -mm. It was always late years later. Yeah, but it's like, you know, hey... Spotswood Robinson, why don't you be like, hey, I remember this paper that one of my students wrote. Let's get them in here. Well, I find myself wondering why didn't they NAACP just, you know, hire Polly? I mean, you I know. mean, because we're going to look at their work history here in a second, but I don't see any working for the NAACP on this work history. So I find that interesting. Yeah, well, I think I think from I think in many ways, Polly saw the NAACP as, you know, starting to kind of be more uh, interested in white response and white interests mm-hmm. uh, to black liberation, um, much in the way some of our other you know activists that we talked about in our our episode on on the civil rights movement. And at so. the time, the NAACP, much like most of the civil rights organizations of the day, was a boys' club. It was dominated by men at the top and in the leadership positions. And so even within the civil rights movement fighting for equality, that gender-based hierarchy was still very much there. I mean, even someone as significant as Rosa Parks was classified as a secretary. I Maybe they would have found it limiting. I know a lot of people found the NAACP limiting in how they worked and maybe a little bit too controlled by white people or influenced right. by white people. <laughs> Well, and never mind, you know, concepts of being queer and perceptions around that as well. You know, there's 
like Murray said themselves, there were multiple things, multiple areas of discrimination that they were affected by. Uh, they ended up earning their JD from Howard and then applied to Harvard for graduate work. Again, at this point, was denied access, this time again due to their assigned gender uh, rather than their race. So constantly ping-ponging back and forth between we can't accept you because X, we can't accept you because of Y. So they opted instead to do postgraduate work at Bolt Hall School of Law at UC Berkeley in California. Going out to the West Coast for a little bit. Yeah, just a, just a little little bit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Polly moved back to New York to pursue law work. At the same time, only around 100 black women practiced law in the whole country, and very few firms were willing to hire a black woman as a lawyer. At first, Polly had difficulty getting a license from the New York Bar Association and was viewed with suspicion because of their left-wing views and their inconsistent work history. By age 36, Polly had worked 23 jobs and had lived in 38 places. Wow. See, nowadays, that's just known as your 20s. Yeah, nowadays, that's just like, like, yeah, like millennial like, experience. That's just your 20s, right? It's like, yeah. It's like, I have three jobs now. Like, yeah, that's just what you do. I'm not yeah. in my 20s, but uh, it should be noted that despite having a college degree, racial and gender discrimination did prevent Polly from financially benefiting from their intellect initially. Jobs working for activist and left-wing organizations like they did provided very little pay, and combined with the time they spent in law school, the 1930s through 1950s was a time of great poverty for Polly. One of their, their big breakthroughs, at least a, a cornerstone of their career, came in, in 1948 when the women's division of the Methodist Church asked and hired Murray to write up an explanation of segregation laws in the United States. The Methodist Church was very famously uh, opposed to segregation and really wanted to know what states in which they had parishes where they were legally obligated to adhere to such um, and what they could get away with in not adhering to segregation. And so they were like asking Murray to like maybe come up with a pamphlet, a summary. Uh, Polly Murray <laughs> went above and beyond and came back with a 746 page book that they titled States Laws on Race and Color. Oh my God, that just sounds so daunting. I mean... <laughs> like almost 800 pages. We're like, talking... Can you, can you oh, write God. this up for us? This Here is pre-internet, pre-interlibrary mm -hmm. loans. We're talking about Polly spending time in law libraries looking at every single state's book of statutes at the yeah. time. Yeah. The ACLU distributed copies to law libraries, colleges, and human rights organizations. Thurgood Marshall called it the Bible of the Civil Rights Movement. And Murray's approach was essential to the arguments used in the Brown v. Board of Education case, as we mentioned. So they came back with this book that was basically used by everybody involved in legal arguments furthering the civil rights movement. Th this was this was the book. I mean, this is so amazing. I mean, nowadays you have like a database of laws. I mean, you know, nowadays you could just like Google and look up what every state's laws are and just do like a spreadsheet. But this was the book that was right. so important. And um, I love that like them essentially <laughs> creating this book. Uh, led to its obsolescence, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? <Yes. laughs> Oftentimes it like brought up the like absolute 
insanity and stupidity of segregation laws and how inconsistent they were. And thus, with Brown v. Board of Education, it became obsolete. So I just, it was, so, right? Uh, so in 1956, Murray was hired by the New York law firm Paul Wise Rifkin Wharton and Garrison as the only black person and only one of three non-men in the office. And really, this is also the first time Polly was able to get a job that equated to their educational level Mm. and to go back to their grandparents and their parents coming from the black middle class, the black elite. This is the first job Polly was able to get that was more in line with what would be expected from a black middle class person. And this is that difficulty of that generational wealth not really transcending. Although Polly came from an elite family, it didn't help them in their own poverty. It didn't help them at all in terms of their own wealth, uh, the way it would for a lot of maybe upper class white people who could afford not to work and have their parents pay for their education. The, the the elite status of the family didn't help them. So I find it interesting that it wasn't until 1956 that they got this middle class job for the first time. Yeah, and uh, worth noting as well is that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a summer associate for one of the summers, one of the years that uh, Murray was at this law firm and the two crossed paths. Ruth Bader Ginsburg would go on to talk about Polly Murray being a huge influence on on her work. In fact, Ruth Bader Ginsburg in that documentary and their mentioning of Polly was part of how this kind of, I don't want to say resurgence because it's this this understanding of them began. Mm-hmm. A yeah. lot of this talk about Polly over the last few years began because Ruth Bader Ginsburg mentioned them. Right. So without that, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation ourselves. I don't know if we would be. Um, so in 1960, Polly took an overseas job at Ghana School of Law for a year, but they didn't stay long as the democratic leadership in Ghana began to fall apart and it was no longer safe. While they were in Ghana, the modern civil rights movement back home was beginning to get into full swing. Woolworth sit-ins in North Carolina were happening as Murray arrived in Ghana. Murray returned to the U.S. and ended up studying at Yale and graduated in 1965 as the first African-American to receive a doctorate of the science of law degree from that particular school. Uh, so much school. So I know. much school. So many schools. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's so hard to keep track of at times. So, uh, like, Hunter College, as well as Howard Law School, and then... Richmond Ber- High School. Richmond High School. Berkeley for the master's in law, and Mm -hmm. then Yale for the doctorate in law. So Polly was Dr. Polly Murray. Yeah. Uh, Never mind all of the schools that they applied to and were denied. And, and, Uh and, you know, like lawyers are JDs. Some people get a master, the master of science. Very, very, very few people ever get the doctorate of science in law. I, yeah. Most schools don't even offer it. So so over the next 10 years, Polly Murray fought ferociously to advance both the civil rights movement and the kind of nascent uh, women's rights movement. So they made waves at various positions at law colleges, arguing sex discrimination cases, and a lot more. And so now we're going to kind of go into specifically their work on women's rights. In 1961, Polly was appointed by President John F. Kennedy to serve on the Presidential Commission on the Status of Women. Polly prepared a memo titled, A Proposal to Reexamine the Applicability of the 14th Amendment to State Laws and Practices Which Discriminate on the Basis of Sex Per Se. 
Nice and succinct. Whew, that was easy. Just put that on a spine of a book. <laughs> it's like the eighth Harry Potter book. It's so easy to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh, the memo argued that the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which guarantees all citizens equal protections of the law, forbade sex discrimination as well as racial discrimination. Yeah, that's the this is the big point. <laughs> that's the, it, I guess now when we're looking at it almost 60 years later, it makes common sense to us. But back then, that was a mind-blowing thing for people to wrap their heads around mm-hmm. that equal protection of the law applied to you no matter your gender no matter no matter your gender or race or anything like we take it for granted now but that was huge back then uh, by 1963 they became one of the first people to publicly criticize the sexism of the civil rights movement they delivered a speech titled the negro woman in the quest for equality and they specifically challenged one of their previous mentors a philip randolph in a letter about the lack of women who were invited to speak at the 1963 March on Washington, or for that matter, be part of delegations that were sent to the White House. They wrote, I have been increasingly perturbed over the blatant disparity between the major role which Negro women have played and are playing in the crucial grassroots level of our struggle and the minor role of leadership they've been assigned in the national policy making decisions. It is indefensible to call a national march on Washington and sound out a call that contains the name of not a single woman leader. Wow. Yeah. It takes a lot of chutzpah to yes. write to A. Philip Randolph and be I like, mean, listen, head of the buddy. Pullman Porters, one of the most significant, <laughs> you know, right. one of the most significant <laughs> civil rights leaders pre Martin Luther King. And just, wow, put them on blast like that. Can I say right, that? Yeah. Am I too old to say that? <laughs> no, I think that's that's the perfect explanation. I'm too old to say, put them on. Oh, no, well. you're not. <laughs> uh, Maybe both of us are. <laughs> And so uh, in 1964, Polly argued as part of being on the presidential commission that it was essential to include the word sex in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Some activists were afraid that it would shift focus from black Americans onto white women or jeopardize the success of the bill. Murray wrote a memo explaining why it was integral to keep sex in the bill. Without such, only half the black population would be protected. They wrote... It is exceedingly difficult for a Negro woman to determine whether or not she has been discriminated against because of race or sex. These two types of discrimination are so closely intertwined and so similar that Negro women are uniquely qualified to affirm their interrelatedness. Uh, So the memo was passed around, even making it to... Man, we've moved through like three presidents now. We're Uh, moving through them. Yeah. Murray did so much. Um, So it made it to uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, and ultimately the word sex stayed in the bill. Professor of Law and History at the University of Pennsylvania, Serena Mayeri, notes... Murray reframed the sex amendment as being really crucial to racial justice, not antithetical to it. And that has remained to this day. Their legacy on, like, making sure that that word stayed in the in the Civil Rights Act and arguing that the 14th Amendment also applied to sex discrimination directly ties into the recent, as of, you know, earlier this year, the recent Supreme Court ruling that the wording of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act extends to discrimination based on gender identity and sexuality, directly because of Murray's fight in the bill. Um, so it was recently argued that the wording that says sex discrimination is illegal extends to discriminating based on actual or perceived gender identity. And so folks who are 
fired for being trans, fired for being thought of as trans, fired for being gender nonconforming. That all fits into this interpretation of the Civil Rights Act. Because they argued to keep it in the bill. Mm-hmm. Another, yeah. Just unsung heroes, I'm telling you. Yeah. Um, frustrated at the lack of progress in the women's movement, by 1965, Murray proposed during a speech in New York that a march on Washington be organized by and for women, prompting Betty Friedan, one of the most prominent and famous feminists in the country at the time, to call them. Murray told Friedan that it was time to organize an NAACP for women, and in 1966, Murray, Friedan, and I believe 90 other women, uh, 90 other people organized the National Organization for Women, or now. Yeah, I think they, like, met in a hotel room. Yes. And all, can you imagine, like, 90 people, like, stuffed into a hotel room? Mm. Oof. Yeah. Do you think it's, like, maybe a ballroom? Yeah, like a ballroom, meeting? something. They so, were in a hotel. Either they way, in, it's they still were in a hotel. social distancing. Even back yeah. in the 60s, that's still inappropriate. <laughs> yeah. Put a mask on. Murray would Murray would end up kind of distancing themselves from now when it became very clear that, you know, NAACP for women became NAACP for white women. Uh, as, as, you know, these movements mostly end up going towards, which is... I just find that so disheartening that... You try to join a group, you try to help form a group, and then you realize that group is not for you after right. leaving another group that was not taking you seriously you know, as a leader. Yeah. It's just a, Polly's life is just a constant struggle t- to be included and feeling excluded, but feeling a calling to do the work regardless. Yeah, when, uh, going back to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when she wrote her brief for Reed versus Reed, a 1971 Supreme Court case which extended the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause to women, uh, she actually added Polly Murray and another feminist and, and legal scholar, uh, Dorothy Kenyon, as co-authors in specific recognition of their influence and also acknowledgement of her debt to all of the essential groundwork that Murray had laid. Yeah, yeah, I haven't done like a word search of NAACP case briefs, but I don't know how much Polly's name would be mentioned in the old 50s and 60s arguments from the NAACP, even though they did rely on their playbook. I don't Boys know how Club. much, I don't know, and I don't, and this is me not saying that the NAACP didn't mention them in their briefs. I'm saying I don't know. That'd be Which something is... to research, but I'm not going to research it because <laughs> my wife has told me I have too many things I'm researching right now. So. <laughs> Uh, the the Gavenclaw struggle. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, which is so ironic considering that they very likely could have identified as a man. So mm-hmm. they should have been in the boys club in the first place anyway. But so, that's neither here nor there. That's neither here nor there. Uh, so by Murray's 60s, Murray made a move that no one really quite expected, but was right in line with their history of going after things they wanted that were barred to them. Polly Murray left their tenured professorship at Brandeis University in 1973 and entered New York's General Theological Seminary to become an Episcopal priest. Uh, at the time, of course, the Episcopal Church didn't ordain women, but when did that ever stop Polly Murray? <laughs> I mean, you can't Never. stop them. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> uh, like what, is, what is it like a un- unstoppable? What is it a unstoppable force meets immovable or an un- immovable object? Yeah, object meets unstoppable force. That's yeah, that's Polly Murray. <laughs> so while Polly was in divinity school, and 
I can't, I can't, I, I have students that have gone back to school in their 60s, like in my classes. They're amazing people to talk to. They know so much, yet they're so eager to learn. I, I just but, can't uh, imagine. Polly has a doctorate of science and law. It's like a PhD in law already. And they went back for more. Uh, So while in school, the church voted to change their policy and allow women to be ordained. And it would be effective January 1st, 1977, three weeks after Murray was set to graduate. So January 8th, 1977, seven days after it was possible, Polly Murray became the first African-American woman to be ordained as an Episcopal priest. And they administered their first Eucharist about a month later in the Chapel of the Cross in North Carolina, which is really significant because it was actually the same church where their grandmother had been baptized and their grandmother was an enslaved person. So the journey from from there to here is so significant. Yeah. Uh, In their biography, they describe their feelings at the service. Whatever future ministry I might have as a priest, it was given to me that day to be a symbol of healing. All the strands of my life had come together, descendant of slave and of slave owner. I had already been called poet, lawyer, teacher, and friend. Now I was empowered to minister the sacrament of one in whom there is no north or south, no black or white, no male or female, only the spirit of love and reconciliation drawing us all toward the goal of human wholeness. Wow. They worked for the next seven years in Washington, D.C., in a Washington, D.C. parish, and Polly ministered to the sick primarily before retiring. Yeah, there was apparently a, uh, uh, there's like the mandatory retirement age for Episcopal priests. And so they were like, all right, well, and I did this for seven years and now it's time to retire. Well, um, I mean, I just, and I don't know, maybe this is because I'm a workaholic myself, but at some point, don't you just want to relax and chill or? <laughs> right. <laughs> I think because Polly felt so many callings. Mm-hmm. it's hard to stop. And you see that about a lot of people that are significant or activists. It's hard to retire from being who you are if who you are is just that amazing. If who you are is called to help people, that's so hard to retire from. <laughs> right. Yeah. So so we've reached the end of Polly's very long and very storied life. In the later years of their life, they had developed pancreatic cancer. And so on July 1st, 1985, they passed away of pancreatic cancer in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in the house that they shared with a lifelong friend. And, uh... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't really know where to, where to end with that. Like, it's just, you know... We don't know a whole lot about, you know, the years in between they, they left the priesthood and developed cancer. But yeah. <sighs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, an hour later. Um, and this is why we wanted to do two episodes. This is why it's a two-parter because this only It didn't touched- feel right to like leave Ugh. out things. And even you know? now we're leaving out things. There's This is the abbreviated version. Very abbreviated. Yeah. yeah. I mean, their, you know, their biography is like 500 pages. And, and I read a whole <laughs> different biography that was about 400 pages. So there's so much. 
Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about some of their work that they did that's more artistic, if you will, as more creative. Right. Yeah, we heard uh, in that quote from their Eucharist service that they had already been called a lawyer, a teacher, and a friend, they were a really established writer. So we wanted to dedicate a whole section this time on their writing and their poetry. Uh, as if being a brilliant legal strategist, author, lawyer, activist, and priest weren't enough, uh, they also wrote brilliantly and beautifully. They published two biographies and a collection of their poetry and called their writing, which was always connected to their social activism, Confrontation by Typewriter, which I'm tempted to make the title of this episode because it's so great. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Confrontation yeah. by Typewriter. Right? I mean, but if you think about it, though, I mean, that's a great title because the reason Polly is significant is because of the words they put on paper. In a 1942 letter to a friend, Murray wrote, I am really a submerged writer, but the exigencies of the period have driven me into social action. For their biographies and their memoirs, the first one that they wrote was titled Proud Shoes, The Story of an American Family, and it's an extremely thorough chronicle of Murray's own family history. It follows their maternal grandparents from the Civil War through Reconstruction, and it was originally published in 1956. And Proud Shoes paints a stark picture of Black experience in America. And Gloria Steinem has a quote on the back of the book, a classic on the intertwining fictions of race and sex, the depth of their cruelty, and the strength that has defied them. Present-day America cannot be understood without true stories like the ones Murray tells. Murray wrote a second book, this time a memoir chronicling their life and legal work, titled Song in a Weary Throat, Memoir of an American Pilgrimage. It covers Polly's life from the history of their parents all the way to the late years of Murray's life, published posthumously in 1987. In it, they cover in detail so many aspects and details from their life, legal career, and the landscape of civil rights in the U.S., and yet it contains almost no information about their love life and relationships. So mm. most of the sources that we get for our next episode that we'll be doing come from some biographies about Polly, about their other written work and their correspondence and their letters. Uh, in addition to their biographies, Murray published a collection of their poetry titled Dark Testament and Other Poems in 1970. So it wasn't published until 1970, but it contains poems that they were writing from the 1930s on. And scholar Christiana Z. Peppard describes Murray's poetry as the place where Murray, quote, dealt creatively with their rage at systemic injustices and many of the topics Murray addresses, such as the complexities of skin color in the United States or the rhetoric and reality of American equality, generate deeply ethical questions. Wow. Uh, this essay, which is uh, Poetry, Ethics, and the Legacy of Polly Murray, is really fantastic, really thorough, and we'll link it in the sources for this episode. I highly recommend you read it. Uh, we wanted to share with you some excerpts of their poetry, which covered such a vast scope of time and events. And as Peppard notes, these were kind of always focusing on three primary themes. Quote, race and interlocking oppressions, the elusive, quote-unquote, dream of America and the vagaries of historiography, and connections among anger, creative energy, and ethical vision. And for this episode, uh, since these poems are coming from such a personal place of emotion, and uh, as you'll hear 
us talk about a little bit anger and personal experience. We opted to, uh, Aubrey has volunteered to read these poems today because I feel just because of the incredibly personal nature of these that it's inappropriate for me to be uh, the voice in any of these coming through. So I thank you, Aubrey, for lending your voice and reading these out for everyone. No problem. I, I, and I, I guess, you know, I'm black. I don't know. Some, sometimes people wonder if people, they know I'm black. I'm black. Um, <laughs> and I guess I resonate a lot with it because the way you and I first connected was last June in 2020, mm-hmm. When hearing about George Floyd happening and everything and people were protesting in the streets, I'm not a protester. I have my own thoughts about the effectiveness of protest. Plus with COVID, I'm not going out there and possibly bringing something back to my family. I have a live with a 70-year-old mother-in-law and my daughter. So I express myself through writing. So I spent June writing, spending 30 every day writing about a different queer person of color. And that was how I expressed myself during Pride Month mm-hmm. to say we're that intersectionality exists. And part of that was because I was so angry and I didn't know what to do. So I started writing and I didn't expect it to go on and be 30 days, but it did. So I guess I understand Murray's idea that you have to put it on the page or you'll never let it go. Mm-hmm. And that's actually how you and I connected, I believe, right? Yeah. 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 I saw, I <laughs> that saw was how many, you and I connected. I saw many of your posts in the uh, Friends yeah. of Nancy Facebook yeah. group. And yeah, that, I was like, I want to talk to this person. So, <laughs> so, so, and a know. year later, we've been, we've been friends for like a whole, whole I year know, right? or so. That's it's, so lovely. <laughs> one day we'll meet in person. But right now yeah. we've got a great Zoom friendship. <laughs> but yeah. yeah so I just, I, I resonate with it. And as a black person who doesn't always fit into different categories myself. And as a Black trans woman, that's always struggled to find her place in my own community, as well as the queer community, as well as the middle-class suburban community. I kind of, I resonate with Polly's struggle and anger of being treated a certain way, but also not being allowed to be yourself within that community. But Mm -hmm. society treats you like you're in that community, but that community doesn't fully embrace you. So I guess I get that duality and that struggle there. So, yeah. Well, let's let's dive into some of the works we're going to share. So the first poem is called To the Oppressors. Now you are strong, and we are but grapes aching with ripeness. Crush us, squeeze from us all the brave life contained in these full skins. But ours is a subtle strength, potent with centuries of yearning, of being kegged and shut away in dark forgotten places. We shall endure to steal your senses in that lonely twilight of your winter's grief. Wow. Yeah. Like, wow. <laughs> That's a... <sighs> I mean, it's it's one thing that I experienced while reading Polly Murray's poetry is how absolutely visceral it is. You you feel it and you see it and it's really, really powerful. It's so raw and it's such a departure from what can be like, you know, legal writing can be very strict. Every word has to mean something. It could be very formalized. And this is just pure emotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, this next one is called Harlem Riot. 1943. Not by hammering the furious word, nor bread stamped in the streets, nor milk emptied in the gutter, 
shall we gain the gates of the city. But I am a prophet without eyes to see. I do not know how we shall gain the gates of the city. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. They were really, really, really deeply affected by the 43 riots in Harlem. And um, we'll see this a little bit more in their their largest work, the, their big epic poem, Dark Testament. They covered a lot of different topics, and this th- that article will go into, you know, all these different themes and the way that, that Murray's poetry, published and unpublished, really speaks to so many different elements of Black experience in the United States. And the next poem that we have, uh, at least an excerpt from, Psalm of Deliverance to the Negro School Children of the American South in the year 1959, specifically admonishing the segregated school system. We were the wanderers. Journeyed to cities, searching and seeking, seeking and searching. Plunged into entrails of ghettos, submerged in garbage of slumlands. Toiled by day, learned by night, won degrees from our great universities. Found them worthless souvenirs of effort, yellowing in a drawer or battered suitcase. Valued less than leavings of cigarettes, scooped from gutters, and hoarded in cans. Wow. Well, I mean, there's always this commentary among Black cultural conversations as education being the key to economic freedom and economic advancement. Mm -hmm. And here Polly is saying those degrees aren't worth much if you're still facing all that racism, all that oppression, all that systematic, just, I don't know the word, just the systematic everything being piled on top of you. What's the point of a degree? So that's just Mm -hmm. amazing. And that also just that degrees from historically black colleges and universities, degrees from black schools were just valued less. It wasn't on the same, you know, barometer of value or, you know, whatever you want to say. And we still see some of that today. We still do. We still see that a lot of that today. A lot of HBCUs find themselves being challenged to continue to exist and people saying, well, why don't you just merge with a white school or why do we still need it? So you still see that today. Polly is probably most most seminal work in in their collection of poetry is an epic. And and when we say epic, we mean the original meaning of the word, like think the Odyssey. So it's an epic poem titled Dark Testament, which according to Peppard, quote, offers a particular enunciation of the history of African Americans in the United States, the Middle Passage, enslavement, and mulatto existence, by calling forth a history that had been left unrecorded. They began the poem as a manuscript in the 1930s under the original title Dark Anger, and they were really spurred on by their despair and anger at the events and violence unfolding in the summer of 1943 after the race riots, and that's when they ended up completing the poem. In Murray's own words, they wrote, For the rest of August, I wrote as one possessed, pouring all my pain and bitterness into Dark Testament. When the poem was completed, I felt as if a demon had been exorcised and a terrible fever inside me had broken. Wow. Uh, We're going to share a few excerpts here. Obviously, we can't share the whole poem, or that would be an entire episode in itself. But we wanted to share some significant passages. And you can actually hear, we're going to be sharing audio of Polly Murray reading the poem at Harvard University, at Radcliffe Institute of Harvard University in 1971. And you can listen to the whole thing. It's about 48 minutes. 
We'll put a link in the sources, and it's also followed by a version sung by a woman named Margaret Hayes. And it's really, really powerful. If you've got an hour to spend listening to this poem, we really highly suggest you check it out. So we will uh, lead in to Polly beginning this poem with an imagery of freedom. Dark Testament in memory of Stephen Vincent Benet. Freedom is a dream, haunting as amber wine, or worlds remembered out of time. Not Eden's gate, but freedom lures us down a trail of skulls where men forever crush the dreamers, never the dream. I was an Israelite, walking a sea bottom. I was a Negro slave, following the North Star. I was an immigrant huddled in ship's belly. I was a Mormon searching for a temple. I was a refugee clogging roads to nowhere. Always the dream was the same. Always the dream was freedom. As Papard observes, freedom is a shimmering hope, yes, but it might may be elusive as a mirage. And then Polly continues, Free earth hungered for free men, but free men soon hungered for gold. Planters bargained with traders, traders bargained with slavers, slavers turned toward Africa. The dream was lost in the quest for gold. We have not forgotten the market square malignant commerce in our flesh, huddled like desolate sheep, tumult of boisterous haggling. We waited the dreadful moment of dispersal. One by one we climbed the auction block, naked in an alien land driven by whips relentless tongue to dance and caper in the sun ripple the muscles from shoulders to hips to show the teeth and bulge the biceps to feel the shame of a girl whose breasts are bared to squeeze of a breeder's fists sold resold with the same coin our unrewarded sweat had born. Wow. Um, and then Murray goes on to admonish the mainstream accounts of history that have whitewashed and censured this oppression, uh, according to Papard, rendering the injustice worse. Tear it out of the history books. Bury it in conspiracies of silence. Fight many wars to suppress it. But it is written in our faces twenty million times over. It sings in our blood. It cries from the housetops. 
It mourns with the wind in the forests, when dogs howl and will not be comforted, when newborn lambs bleat in the snowdrifts, and dead leaves rattle in the graveyards. And we'll shout it from the mountains, we'll tell it in the valleys, we'll talk it in Minah Shack, we'll sing it at the workbench, we'll whisper it over back fences, we'll speak it in the kitchen, we'll state it at the White House, we'll tell it everywhere to all who will listen. We will lay siege, let thunder serve our claim, for it must be told, endlessly told, and you must hear it. Listen, white brothers, hear the dirge of history, and hold out your hand, hold out your hand. Better our seed rot on the ground and our hearts burn to ash than the years be empty of our imprint. Simultaneously, Murray's work also emphasizes an enduring vision of justice and a mature, resilient hope that things can be other than they are. Then let the dream linger on. Let it be the test of nations. Let it be the quest of all our days, the fevered pounding of our blood, the measure of our souls, that none shall rest in any land and none return to dreamless sleep. No heart be quieted, no tongue be stilled, until the final man may stand in any place and thrust his shoulders to the sky, friend and brother to every other man. Wow. I yeah. want to go back and read the whole thing now. I've... Yeah, it's like, we, we can't include it. No, but I want it. to read it. I, um, and now I want to read it. And it's so and I want good. To include, I mean, I, I just, I the, seg- the segment about the way that, that mainstream accounts of history have, you know, just torn it out, torn it out. And they go on to, you know, say things like, our history is not the history of children's bedtime stories or something like that. Um, and I just, I can't think of any more powerful way to, to articulate this better, better we experience this hurt and pain by being reminded of it than the years be empty of our imprint. I don't know if maybe because I've grown up hearing the March on Washington, uh, hearing the I Have a Dream speech too many times, mm. but I find this last stanza to be about a hundred times more powerful. And maybe that's just because I'm desensitized to uh, Dr. King's speech, but I find this to be more raw, to be more true, to be more honest yeah. in a way that they weren't trying to placate anyone. They were trying, yes. and I think, I don't know. I just find it to be more powerful. I mean, I guess it's, you know, it's kind of different, different modes different methods you know and and Polly Murray was very raw and very uh you know not interested in censoring themselves not interested in uh playing a role that they didn't believe was completely authentic to themselves and this was 20 years before the march on washington um uh, mm-hmm. 
Uh, we're going to share a few excerpts here. Obviously, we can't share the whole poem, or that would be an entire episode in itself. But we wanted to share some significant passages. And you can actually hear, we're going to be sharing audio of Polly Murray reading the poem at Harvard University, at Radcliffe Institute of Harvard University in 1971. And you can listen to the whole thing. It's about 48 minutes. We'll put a link in the sources, and it's also followed by a version sung by a woman named Margaret Hayes, and it's really, really powerful. If you've got an hour to spend listening to this poem, we really highly suggest you check it out. So we will uh, lead in to Polly beginning this poem with an imagery of freedom. So as we as we come to the end of... Uh, talking about Murray's poetry, obviously there's a lot more than we could have talked about here. Uh, we wanted to end this episode on not quite such yeah, a let's bummer. Lighten, let's lighten um, things up a little bit. Let's lighten the mood I mean, a little bit. If you could tell, um, Polly did enjoy life and loved the fullness yes. of life. Let's talk about some yeah. fun things. Yeah, one of one of the really fun anecdotes and elements from Polly Murray's life is their extraordinary friendship with Eleanor Roosevelt. And we mentioned this very briefly up at the top. This friendship lasted years, nearly 30 years, longer even than Murray was with their longest intimate partner, which we'll be talking about in episode two. They originally met in the 1930s, in the early 30s, when Eleanor visited the New Deal women's camp. <laughs> and apparently uh, everyone rose off of their feet to meet the First Lady, except for Murray, who refused to stand in her presence. Whether this was a political act of protest or just plain emotional and physical exhaustion from Murray's poor condition and recent mental health struggles, it's unclear, uh, but it's... Very obvious that Murray immediately made an impression. Uh, journalist Kenneth W. Mack describes Murray as impetuous and rebellious in a way that could get under Roosevelt's skin. And those are the best kind of friends yeah. to have, honestly. Uh, right? Somebody who will just call yeah, you on your that. shit. Uh, and Eleanor made just as much an impression on Murray, 25 years younger. To Murray, then age 23, Roosevelt's self-assurance was a symbol of women's independence a symbol that endured throughout Murray's life. And that was from Patricia Bell Scott. They started sending letters to each other uh, in 1938, starting with Polly's letter to the president criticizing him for his acceptance of an honorary doctorate from the University of North Carolina, despite the fact that it refused to integrate and admit black students. And Murray, in this letter, essentially copied Eleanor on the letter, uh, thinking, hmm, well, I once met this, this woman, maybe I can get it in front of her eyes and she can make a difference. And Eleanor actually responded. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt purposely and publicly celebrated her friendships with Black Americans as a means to attack racial inequity when, as First Lady, she had no formal government power. They had been friends with uh, educator and New Deal administrator Mary McLeod Bethune, and NAACP leader Walter White. But Roosevelt's friendship with Murray was something more in-depth and intimate. For years to come, they had their disagreements, but still came to one another with a deep affection. 
Yeah. They later met again in person in Manhattan at Roosevelt's apartment when Murray was in New York to lead a delegation for National Sharecroppers Week. And they would continue to encounter one another amid various social reform efforts. So they kind of, you know, existed in the same circles. They continued to see each other. Um, sometimes, you know, they were at odds on different sides, considering Polly was, you know, a might bit more radical than Eleanor well, at the time. Well, should be expected. I mean, <laughs> Eleanor Roosevelt, yeah. as progressive as she was was an upper class white lady. So I mean, Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so this evolved into several invitations to tea at the Roosevelt's and other gatherings. Murray began calling Eleanor by Mrs. R and continually challenged her and her presidential husband in a series of letters and poems. In 1943, Murray published and sent to Eleanor a poem titled Mr. Roosevelt Regrets criticizing FDR's lackluster response to the 1943 urban race riots. Writing, what'd you get when the police shot you in the back and they changed you to the beds when they wiped the blood off? What'd you get when you cried out to the top man? What'd the top man say, black boy? Mr. Roosevelt regrets. Wow. And if that's not the most relevant, everlasting poem... I don't know what is, and it's depressing yes. that it is. Uh, so yeah, Eleanor wrote a, a terse reply to it that just said, I am sorry, but I understand. Um, and that's an interesting idea because this is the reminder that Eleanor Roosevelt could not control her husband, who was the president, who had all these other political things to worry about. There's a limit to the power behind the throne sometimes, you know? Mm. Roosevelt once called a letter from Murray. <laughs> what? I like no, just this thinking about this quote coming up. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, Roosevelt once called a letter from Murray one of the most thoughtless I have ever read, and Polly responded with, "You have been utterly frank with me, and I should like to be equally frank with you." I love, I love it. it. Mm. Uh, when Murray was lobbying FDR on behalf of Odell Waller. Eleanor, spurred on by her own convictions and the work and passions of Murray, actually ended up lobbying her husband as persistently as she could. And when Waller was ultimately executed and they weren't able to kind of stay that execution, both she and Murray were just absolutely shaken and devastated. After FDR's death in 1945, their friendship deepened as Eleanor dealt with what the loss of her public role and her husband meant for her life. And they spent many visits together in Roosevelt's upstate New York home. Uh, Eleanor's illness and then death in 1962 affected Murray greatly. Murray attended her funeral and visited Mrs. Roosevelt's summer home to commemorate her memory. In their autobiography, Murray described the effect Roosevelt had on themselves and their grief at the prospect of her loss and their dedication to continue their work in her honor. Yeah, uh, Murray wrote, She had filled the landscape of my entire adult life as she had done for millions of my generation, and it was unthinkable to associate her with death. As first lady of the world, she belonged to humanity, an extension of ourselves. Yet in this crisis, those of us outside her intimate family circle had no way of showing our love for one who had given us so much. I kept a private vigil, as others must have done during those final days, and the only way I knew how to serve her was to pour myself into completing the memorandum, 
following her example of doing the things at hand. It became my memorial to her last public service, and I have always believed Mrs. Roosevelt's spirit suffused that effort and shaped the final product. So if you want to learn more about Polly Murray and about their relationship with Eleanor Roosevelt, which, as we, as we said, lasted nearly 30 years, there is a fantastic book by, I believe it's Rosalind Rosenberg, called The Firebrand and the First Lady, which is, acts essentially as, a, as a, another biography of Polly Murray, but chooses to do it through the lens of 30 years of their friendship with Eleanor Roosevelt. And, you know, we'll get into this more with our our next episode, but I think there's just something really special about the relationship between these two people, especially considering a lot of the evidence we have at hand for Eleanor Roosevelt being a member of the queer community. And whatever you want to say about the nature of their relationship, I see queer mentorship yes. here, yes. Um, which is so rare. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so... Queer yeah. mentorship and a willing to challenge those social class norms and racial norms. It's, it was genuine. Yeah. yeah. I just, it's wonderful. So, so. Yeah. So, uh, that is the end of this episode. Um, it's a little weird to end an episode without our, you know, how gay were they, uh, things like that. But that is what we will leave for episode two. Hopefully we'll be able to release it real quick so you don't have to wait too long in between. Um, but before we hop off and leave people on the edge of their seats to hear all the, the details of Polly Murray's queerness, is there anything else, Aubrey, that you want to contribute to our narrative this episode or anything else you want to say that we haven't gotten a chance to talk about, about their life? I don't think so. I mean, you know, I, I, you just can't cover everything in even one or two episodes, but I will say, I think I love Polly Murray because of all the intersectionality and because of their complicated background and coming from a place of privilege. One of the things I, I study a lot and research a lot is the black middle class, the black upper class. And we've never known too, too much about how the black upper and middle class felt about the civil rights movement. So this does provide some important glimpses there. And I'm excited to mm. talk more about their gender and their sexuality in the next episode. And I just had a lot of fun talking to you today. I always have a lot of fun talking with you. It's really <laughs> wonderful. Um, well, uh, we'll do just a you know, our regular closer at the very least. Aubrey, can you tell our listeners at home where they can find more about you and your So the podcast work? is called Southern Queries, and that's Q-U-E-E-R-I-E-S. And I think the best way to find me these days might be on Twitter. I'm at at Aubrey, A-U-B-R-E-E -E underscore N underscore T-X. So it's Aubrey in Texas, and I've, I'm around. I do. I, I, I write things. <laughs> yeah, you also have a, I write, have a website. I have a website, uh, com. I put all my things that I publish there. Uh, but, you know, you could, I'm around. I'm a, well, I'm we'll around. link to all of them. <laughs> Just find me on some kind of social media. And I don't do TikTok, though, so I can't help you there. <laughs> I lurk. I lurk can't on TikTok. Can't do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
Uh, I'm Lee, and when I'm not nerding out about old-timey queer folks and being angry that I didn't hear about the most essential person to the arguments for the Equal Rights Amendment ever, uh, I am usually talking about comics and queer TV over at A Paradox in Flux on Twitter, and as usual, crying about Xena episodes on my couch, which I've done a lot in this pandemic. I've also been playing a lot of video games, so uh, talk to me about Pokemon Snap. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) History is Gay Podcast can be found on Tumblr at History is Gay Podcast, Twitter at History is Gay Pod. You can always drop us a line with questions, suggestions, or just to say hi at History is Gay Podcast at gmail.com. We always really love hearing from folks. If you enjoy the show and want to support us in continuing to make it, you can support us on Patreon, where you can get access to Sappho's Salon Minisodes, which I should have one coming out this month, don't you worry, Uh, special sneak peeks, and the opportunity to have your voice show up in the show, and more. We're also considering redoing our Patreon tiers, so if you are on there, please take our little Patreon survey. We're really interested in hearing what folks are interested in and what folks can have go by the wayside. You can become a patron by going to the support section on our website and join the ranks of our patron community, along with the amazing Andreas Yearn, Carissa Smitherman, Zoe, and Nicole Welsh. Thank you so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do this without you. You are the reason why we're able to have such wonderful guests and we're able to do so many different things. You can also buy merch at our History is Gay store. Click on shop on our website. And lastly, remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, especially during Pride Month. That would be really wonderful. It helps more people find the show and we can expand our awesome community. So that is it for this episode of History is Gay. Stay tuned next for our part two discussion on Polly Murray. And Aubrey, would you like to help me close out the show? Sure, why not? (laughs) Wonderful. Until next time, stay queer and stay curious. (laughs) 